Well, we're going to do something slightly different today. Um, I'm not going to begin with the scripture reading. Instead, I have chosen to include it, include the reading within the sermon. I've done this for a couple of reasons. The first being the size of the passage. Daniel 11 is a very lengthy text, and it would take me roughly 10 minutes to read through it all just once. Second, Daniel 11 is also a very confusing text to understand without commentary. So my plan is to take you through it little by little, giving explanation as we progress. Now, to some, it may, may seem like a history lesson, and if you don't like history, I apologize. Um, but this is what God's Word is speaking to us today. Um, you see, it, it contains uh, many details taking the reader through roughly 500 years of Middle Eastern history. Now, there's not enough time to go through every minute detail that's laid out here, but there is a lot going on in this passage. And if I were to mention every king and queen and all of their exploits. It would take me close to an hour and a half to cover it all, and I don't think you want that. Oh, go <laughs> I heard it. Don't tempt me. <laughs> so, but while these details are important, um, they were written down for a purpose. They are to show the struggles that Israel would face as they awaited the arrival of the kingdom of God. In a sense, they are built up to a climactic finish, which is the main point of the angel's message. In other words, these 500 years that we read about of kings feuding with one another, they are setting the stage so that the curtain of God's kingdom could be opened. So here's my plan. I want to give you a general overview of each section of history indicating why it was important to the Jewish people and how it all led to God's plan of redemption. But before we begin, let me ask you a few questions. Who here remembers what happened on September 11th, 2001? Raise your hands if you know. I think everyone in the room remembers that day. The day the World Trade Center fell, killing almost 3,000 people and injuring over 6,000 more. What about December 7th, 1941? Still quite a few hands, though not as many. That was the day the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. Over 2,400 people died and close to 1,200 others were wounded. How about December 24th, 2004? I don't see any hands. That was the day that a massive tsunami hit the shores of Thailand and Sri Lanka, taking the lives of over 230,000 souls. What about March 11th, 2011? Again, no one. That was the day another tsunami hit the coast of Japan, and that day, over 18,000 people died. You see, for us, the first two dates, they're ingrained in our memories because it concerns us. Even though far few people died because of these events, we still know those dates. This is what Daniel 11 is like. 
The focus is on the people of Israel and the kingdoms that would rule over them from the time of David until the time of Christ. Now, some of this prophecy covers major events in world history, while other portions of it, it doesn't seem like they are even worthy of a footnote in the history books. Yet each event was significant to the people of God, for it directly impacted their lives. Remember, Daniel chapters 10, 11, and 12, they are all one unit. And if you remember, in chapter 10, Daniel was visited by God's messenger. But before he could reach Daniel, there was this epic battle between him and the demonic king of Persia. They fought for 21 days. Finally, Michael came to the aid of this messenger, allowing him to reach Daniel to deliver God's message. And this angel told Daniel that the words he was about to receive concerned what would happen to the people of Israel in the future. For the vision concerns a time yet to come. This is the context of our passage this morning. Let's hear this message from God, starting with verses 2 through 4 of chapter 11. You can find it in your uh, pew Bibles on page 1390. Daniel chapter 11, verses 2 through 4. Now then, I tell you the truth. Three more kings will appear in Persia, and then a fourth, who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king will appear who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has appeared, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. Here we get another glimpse of that battle between the goat and the ram that we read about in Daniel chapter 8. This fourth king of Persia is most likely Xerxes, for he stirred up trouble with the Greeks by launching multiple invasions, most of which failed. This caused quite a bitter rivalry between Greece and Persia. The mighty king who would appear was Alexander the Great. And Alexander, he swept through the Persian Empire, wiping out its capital city. But his life was cut short, and the empire was divvied up by his four generals, two of which would be of great concern for the Jews. This sets up our next section of scripture, and it's a lengthy one, verses 5 through 20. Daniel 11, verses 5 through 20. The king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger than he and will rule his own kingdom with great power. After some years, they will become allies. The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance, but she will not retain her power, and he and his power will not last. In those days, she will be handed over together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. One from her family line will arise to take her place. 
He will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortress. He will fight against them and be victorious. He will also seize their gods, their metal images, and their valuable articles of silver and gold and carry them off to Egypt. For some years he will leave the king of the north alone. Then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will retreat to his own country. His sons will prepare for war and assemble a great army, which will sweep on like an irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south will march out in a rage and fight against the king of the north, who will raise a large army, but it will be defeated. When the army is carried off, the king of the south will be filled with pride and will slaughter many thousands, yet he will not remain triumphant. For the king of the north will muster another army larger than the first, and after several years he will advance with a huge army fully equipped. In those times, many will rise against the king of the south. The violent men among your own people will rebel in in fulfillment of the vision, but without success. Then the king of the north will come and build up siege ramps and will capture a fortified city. The forces of the south will be powerless to resist. Even their best troops will not have the strength to stand. The invader will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land and will have the power to destroy it. He will determine to come with the might of his entire kingdom and will make an alliance with the king of the south. And he will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom, but his plans will not succeed or help him. Then he will turn his attention to the coastlands and will take many of them, but a commander will put an end to his insolence and will turn his insolence back upon him. After this, he will turn back toward the fortresses of his own country, but will stumble and fall to be seen no more. His successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. In a few years, however, he will be destroyed, yet not in anger or in battle. In this long section, we see two of the kingdoms that came out of Alexander's empire. The king of the south refers to the Ptolemaic reign in Egypt, and the king of the north represents the Seleucid kingdom in Syria. Now, I have uh, prepared for each of you a map in your bulletin in order to demonstrate where these two kingdoms are located in relation to Israel. If you could pull them out. Now, if you see this, this massive yellow kingdom right here that says Seleucids. That represents the kings of the north. And this blue kingdom down here that's in Egypt, that represents the kings of the south or the Ptolemaic kingdom. And Israel happens to be smack dab in the middle of these two nations. And the Jews, as a result, they were caught up and the affairs and the wars of these kings. 
In these verses, Daniel, he gives us a play-by-play description of the lines of secession for each kingdom, including two failed attempts to take the upper hand through intermarriage. Now, there are a couple verses that I want to highlight in this section. The first is verse 14. It says, In those times many will rise against the king of the south. The violent men among your own people will rebel in fulfillment of the vision, but without success. Here we see that the Israelites are not necessarily neutral parties in in all of this. They take sides. And at times, they fight for these kings. The second section of note is in verses 18 and 19. It reads, Then he will turn his attention to the coastlands and will take many of them. But a commander will put an end to his insolence and will turn his insolence back upon him. After this, he will turn back toward the fortresses of his own country, but will stumble and fall to be seen no more. Here we see one of these kings of the north. In fact, it's actually Antiochus III. And what he is doing, he is trying to expand his control into Asia Minor and into Greece. By doing so, he attracted unwanted attention from Rome. The Romans did not like these advances of Antiochus III. So they sent their armies to drive him back. Antiochus had to retreat. Yet soon after, he died. You see, just as Xerxes provoked the Greeks, now this Seleucid king had provoked the sleeping bear that was the Roman Empire. His actions would haunt the kings of the north from there on out. And all this sets up the stage for a most wicked ruler to come onto the scene. All throughout Daniel, we have seen God pointing to this man of intrigue. And here he is again. Look at verse 21. He will be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure, and he will seize it through intrigue. Here we see the rise of Antiochus IV or Antiochus Epiphanes. You should remember this name. He is that little horn from Daniel 7 that waged war against God's people. He is also the rebellious horn from Daniel 8 that came from the goat. And he is a ruler from Daniel chapter 9 who set up the abomination that causes desolation in the temple of God. And now, here in Daniel 11, we get a closer look at this stern-faced king. Verses 22 through 24. Then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and a prince of the covenant will be destroyed. After coming to an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully. And with only a few people, he will rise to power. When the richest provinces feel secure, he will invade them and will achieve what neither his fathers nor his forefathers did. He will distribute plunder 
He will distribute plunder, loot, and wealth among his followers. He will plot the overthrow of fortresses, but only for a time. Now, the prince of the covenant is most likely referring to Onias III, who was high priest in Israel during that time. You see, Onias was a faithful Orthodox Jew. These verses describe Antiochus' removal of Onias from power and its installation of Jason into the position of high priest. Remember, I don't know if you remember, but Jason was the one who favored Hellenization for the Jews, the very thing that Antiochus wanted. Let's read on, verses 25 through 28. With a large army, he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south. The king of the south will wage war with a large and very powerful army, but he will not be able to stand because of the plots devised against him. Those who eat from the king's provisions will try to destroy him. His army will be swept away, and many will fall in battle. The two kings, with their hearts bent on evil, will sit at the same table and lie to each other, but to no avail, because an end will still come at the appointed time. The king of the north will return to his own country with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action against it and then return to his own country. Here we see that Antiochus IV would have success in his invasions into Egypt, winning on the battlefield and taking away plunder. As he was growing stronger, he became more and more confident in his dealings with Israel. His practice of Hellenization was strictly enforced, fueling stronger resistance among the Jewish faithful. Verses 29 and 30. At the appointed time, he will invade the south again, but this time the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships of the western coastlands will oppose him, and he will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the holy covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the holy covenant. Antiochus would once again invade Egypt, but this time the sins of his father Antiochus III would come back to haunt him. You see, the Romans came to the aid of the Ptolemaic kings in Egypt, and Antiochus was overmatched. In a show of force, the Roman general drew a circle in the sand around Antiochus, telling him that he must make a decision before leaving that circle. This act of humiliation infuriated Antiochus. But he knew better than to disobey, for it would have cost him his life. So he withdrew, and he returned to Jerusalem, where he would vent his anger. Verses 31 through 35. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant 
But the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Those who are wise will instruct many. Though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they will receive a little help. And many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end. For it will still come at the appointed time. Once again, God points Daniel to the desecration of his holy temple. It was on the Sabbath that Antiochus decided to invade because he knew that the least resistance would come on that holy day. For the Orthodox Jews would refuse to fight. The walls of the city crumbled, and many were slaughtered without mercy. They were martyrs for the faith. Yet there were many Jews who fell in line with Antiochus, violating the laws of Moses. They gave in to Hellenization because they loved themselves more than they loved God. But as we've seen in previous chapters of Daniel, the Maccabees, they would rise up and raise up an army and eventually take back the land, though not without suffering and loss along the way. The book of Daniel makes much of Antiochus Epiphanes, this persecutor of the saints. And if you look through the annals of history, one might wonder why. For Antiochus IV, he was not even the most successful king of his own time. But God's assessment of his importance is based exclusively on his role of bringing about tribulation upon the faithful. Through Hellenization, this king of the north challenged the way of life for Orthodox Jews. But more than that, he was a great offense to the Lord. To the Jews, this was their 9-11. This was their day that lived in infamy. All this leads to this final section and some of the most difficult verses to understand if you do not understand the referent. Verses 36 through 45. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed. For what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the one desired by women. Nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god unknown to his fathers. He will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign god and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land at a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. 
He will also invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. He will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt, with the Libyans and Nubians in submission. But reports from the east and the north will alarm him, and he will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. This is a picture of the final powerful ruler who would set the stage for God's plan of redemption for Israel. This king who does as he pleases is neither a king of the south nor a king of the north. He is none other than Octavius Caesar or Caesar Augustus. It is through this emperor that judgment would come upon both the Ptolemaic and the Seleucid rulers both of whom had trampled trampled upon God's people. This struggle culminated during the sea battle of Actium, where in in 31 BC, Octavian defeated the combined forces of Cleopatra and Mark Antony. Some of you may know that story. This victory enabled Octavian to consolidate his authority over the Roman Empire, And he took upon himself this title, Caesar Augustus, which means the great one. With the kings of the north and south out of the way, lands such as Israel were there for the taking. Yet he too would come to an end. So what is the purpose in all of this? Why does Daniel receive this vision from God? First and foremost, as the angel said, it concerned the future of his people. God was showing to Daniel that the kingdom of God would not be established without turmoil and pain. But as we will see next week when we dig into chapter 12, there is a hope beyond the suffering of this world. Second, a detailed prophecy such as this demonstrates both God's foreknowledge and his sovereignty. Nothing surprises God. And as evil as the world may get at times, God is in control. He sets limits to these destructions that come from these wicked overlords. Finally, all these events were preparations for God's true kingdom to break forth. You see, God was orchestrating the events of history, setting the stage for the birth of his son. In our first scripture reading from today, we saw exactly what God was preparing for his people. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went 
up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Through all the struggle and turmoil that these Jews faced, trying to establish themselves again, once again, as a nation, God brought about his kingdom in a manner that none expected. And it was during the reign of Augustus Caesar, this king who does as he pleases, that Christ, our Savior, was born. The stage was set. And God's plan to redeem Israel and establish his kingdom had come to fruition. Dear friends, nothing can shock God. No king on this earth can foil his plans. No matter how evil you think your world gets, God is not surprised nor worried. He has a plan of rescue for his people. And though you may suffer along the way, your loss is only temporary. And though God may choose you to become a martyr of the faith, the blood you pour out will not be in vain. For your hope is not in any earthly kingdom, but in a heavenly one. Your joy is not in earthly possessions, but in an everlasting dominion that cannot be shaken. Your trust is not in the strength of the powerful leaders and the influencers of our day, but in the blood of the one who died for your sins upon the cross. <clears throat> Brothers, sisters, Jesus is a king that you should look to. Only he can deliver to you a true kingdom that does not pass away. All these other powers that have come about, they will fade. But Jesus, they tried to kill him and he rose from the dead. He is victorious over all of his enemies. And he doesn't need intrigue. He doesn't need chariots. He doesn't need warships. For he is sufficient within himself. Jesus is your hope. As David penned for you in the Psalms, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. The stage was set. Christ was born. Let us pray. Father, you are both omnipotent and omniscient. You are all-powerful, and there is nothing, past, present, or future, that you do not know. You have set your hand upon history, and you are directing all things in accordance to your will. Lord, 
Make us a people worthy of your kingdom. Cleanse us with the blood of your Son. Renew our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. Aid us as we seek to follow your will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.